it's the penultimate day of June. I it's been such a weird June because it's been so wet. Yeah. <laughs> and like terrible. It has been, but it was super dry before that. And in May, everything died, which was really hard. It was hard. I feel like my lawn was getting so brown. It was so, yes. Yeah. Everybody's yards in Maryland. It Honestly, it looked like Arizona over here. <laughs> It was crazy. <laughs> it was really crazy. But again, I feel like all we talk about in these cold opens is the the weather. I know. It's and, so easy to talk and about. And gardening. I know. But it's just, it's because our houses aren't air conditioned that the, or heated <laughs> that the weather is really, it's like we're living in medieval Europe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like we are stoking fireplaces yeah. and harvesting food. Like that's how it is around here. I know. My life is literally revolving around the weather so hardcore right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I'm I am excited though because since it's been raining so much, I do feel like the garden is flourishing again. Good. Uh my radishes are huge. I'm and it's very exciting. So jealous. <laughs> And I grew these ones from seed. All the other plants I Good got. Job. Uh, and my sunflowers I grew from seeds. Yeah. Um, so they're getting really big. They haven't bloomed yet, but I'm excited. I'm going to be really sad if they just turn out to be weeds. No. Uh, I'm no, like, no, 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 no. That's I'm what they look like. That. <laughs> That's what they look like. I, I made, remember that year I made the sunflower like castle for the kids in the backyard? It was adorable. Allie planted sunflower seeds in a perfect like circle. And then the girls had like a sunflower fort. Yeah. It was so <laughs> cute. That was a lot of fun. But also I can't do it here because deer love sunflower. Oh, and they no. like as soon as the head appears, they eat it just right off the top. And then it looks like a weed. You just have a long stick. Oh, my gosh. That sucks. Yeah. I didn't know that they did that. I hate it. You know what I think? Every morning on my run, there is a house that has a big plastic deer in the front lawn and they're facing Herring Run Park where there are a lot of deers and every morning I go through the same thought process I'm like I wonder if they put that deer there to scare away deer from their yard. It has to be. It, it has, has to be. be. Um, and I did see the fox, our, our, na- our local neighborhood fox, run into someone's yard today. I always Crazy. feel like I'm going to have, like, good luck on a day when I see the fox. Yes, That's I mean, like there the are thing so that many animals <laughs> on runs through Baltimore City. It's astonishing. It's shocking. It's like its own little wilderness. Yes. <laughs> The oasis, if you, you might want to call it. You might, you might say. On the biggest estuary yeah. in North America. <laughs> the Chesapeake Bay. Okay, I'm done with geography lessons. Yeah, done with that. Because uh, we're, we're not here to talk about that. No. We're here to talk about history. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places. Because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time and we are not historians <laughs> not even a little little itty bitty bit not even a little bit um, we try really hard yeah okay, you know some weeks we get everything right but most weeks we get a lot wrong oh yeah for and sure. that's okay i think it's fine that's what we're here for we're just here to give you information that we found online and if it's wrong it actually isn't our fault yeah exactly blame the internet <laughs> that should be the tagline for this show <laughs> okay um, boomer <laughs> Um, okay, so you are busy. Yeah, you are planting your own sunflower fort. Right. Right now. You just found backyard. out about it, you so you're going to do it. it. You're, you got in your car, you're on your way to Lowe's to get sunflower seeds. Um, so we don't want you driving while gar. I mean... <laughs> Driving while gardening. We don't want you Googling while gardening. No, driving while gardening is the new... (laughs) (laughs) We certainly don't want you um, 
Googling while driving. Right. Um, so we are going to describe what these women look like so you can have a picture in your head while we're telling their story. Perfect. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? <laughs> I am doing the Dame Maggie Smith. Oh, my God. Margaret Smith. Um, she's now in her 80s but has been on screen for a very long time, almost six decades. Oh, my God. Um, some of her most notable features are her large protruding ice blue eyes with mm -hmm. very pronounced eyelids. Uh, I would say that her eyes are arrestingly blue. I, yeah, I would agree with that. They are like cold. Like she could be an ice walker, honestly, yeah. with those eyes. No contacts necessary. Her cheekbones become really pronounced when she smiles. They get yeah. like poofy. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Um, and she has a very angular like chin and nose, which is great for when she is looking down upon <laughs> someone with scorn and, of course, a little bit of love. And that's what Maggie Smith looks like. I would say she has the perfect face for those long glasses that just sit on the edge of your nose. Oh, my gosh. Because <laughs> they were made for her. I mean, from Mother Superior to Violet, the Dowager Duchess like <laughs> of wherever in Downton Abbey, that's what we grew up with her as. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. people who knew her in her younger days, she was, like, a totally different actress. But, like, we grew up with her as, like, a very cold yeah. Great aunt, yeah. I would say. You know what I mean? Yeah. She's she's a great, great actress. I love her. Okay, who are you doing and what does she look like? All right, I am doing Shonda Rhimes. Um, so Shonda Rhimes is a black American woman of average height and build. She has an oval face with dark almond-shaped eyes and just like this big, wide smile. That, and she has just like a little tiny gap in between her two front teeth. Her dark hair is typically shoulder length and curly, and she is always dressed very nicely, whether she is on set, in the writer's room, or walking the red carpet. And her favorite pose is both hands on the hips. Good. Power pose. That is a power pose. Yeah, just straight on both hands on the hips legs like apart or legs photos. crossed like one of she's the always other. wearing a dress so right. i couldn't see her oh, legs. oh i see i see i see yeah, yeah. Hmm. but yeah very power posy i yeah. love that that's shonda rhymes <laughs> perfect okay so do you want to know what you're drinking for yes, maggie I do. okay this is just simply called dame maggie mm. of course mm -hmm. um it is an ounce and a half of light rum uh, orange juice, lemon juice, simple syrup, egg white, and you sh do a dry shake, put that in your glass, and then you top it all with champagne. Ooh, cheers. Cheers. Mm. Mm. That is really nice. I like that a lot. That's a great love, cocktail. Yeah. I love any cocktail that has egg whites and champagne in it because mm -hmm. it's like light and it's frothy and it's sparkly and it's just it's so good yeah i was worried that the orange and lemon would be too much but i mm -mm. think it's almost a, a back note like you can mm -hmm. barely taste that it's there yeah or the rum even really yeah mm, that's nice and smooth mm -hmm. well good job me <laughs> i love it when that happens yeah. <laughs> um okay tell me what you know about margaret smith okay so I know that she is most famous for portraying Professor McGonagall. Of course. Um, and I know that she's a British actress. She's been doing it for a long time. Again, like we said, she always plays like stern, older woman roles now. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, she's just been in 
so much. But all I don't know anything about her personal life. I don't know if she's ever been married. I don't know if she has kids. I don't know anything about her. <laughs> well, I'm going to give you what I can. It's uh, Maggie Smith is a very private person. Mm-hmm. Even like her biography, which I read sections of, or like because I needed something yeah. personal <laughs> about her. It's not an autobiography. It's written by someone else. It's a okay. biography. It's straight. It's to the point. It's about her acting. So most of what we know about Maggie is really professional life stuff and yeah. what she said in interviews. So I watched a lot of like the Graham Norton show. Yeah. And like just tried to get a feel for her. So my sources are um, Wikipedia, obviously, sections of her biography that's just simply called Maggie Smith, Tea with Dames, which is a cute documentary that came out in like 2019, which was just a cute like girl gab with her mm-hmm. and like Judy Dench and a couple other dames that are also actresses. Um, and then there was a really good YouTube video called like The Untold Story of Maggie Smith or something that was only 11 minutes, but uh-huh. it was good. Oh, good. Like, I love it gave those. a lot of good details in like a very short film. Okay. Margaret Natalie Smith. Natalie. I know. I love when I'm just shocked by the mere name of someone. <laughs> the middle name, <laughs> Margaret Natalie Smith, was born December 28th, 1934 in Essex. Her mom, not Essex, Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> Dear God, her roots would be brown and her hair would be blonde. Um, her mom was Margaret Hutton and she was a secretary from Glasgow and her dad was Nathaniel Smith and he was in public health, uh, and he was from Newcastle and he worked for the University of Oxford. Apparently her parents had this really adorable meet cute on a train between Glasgow and London, but again, Maggie's super private. So I don't know a lot about it. Just that she brought up that her parents met on this train and (laughs) fell in love. She and her family moved to Oxford when she was four years old, and she has two older brothers who are twins. Oh. Um, her family did not want her to act. That is something that she has brought up a lot. She was born right before World War II and was in her late teens, early 20s, right after World War II and the Great Depression. So acting was kind of seen as an indulgence. and Yeah, like frivolous. Yeah, very Mm -hmm. frivolous for this time period. And she even got in trouble one time for going to the theater with her neighbors on a Sunday. It was like a very, like, you should not have done that. Like, that's outside of, like, what we think we should be as a family. Yeah. Well, I'm sure also in those times it's not even, like, what we think we should be, but, like, how the neighbors will see us. Right. How people are going to see us as people. Yeah. It's like, we're not the type of people who would just let our daughter engage in this, you know, (laughs) wasteless, you know, or useless activity. Like Mr. and Mrs. Dursley are perfectly normal. Thank you very much. So she was uh, educated at Oxford High School, and she graduated early when she was 16. Mm. She graduated from high school and went right on to the Oxford Playhouse. So she's 17-year-old, starting her acting career. So what I did is, because her she's been in everything and won every single possible award, so what I did is I grouped everything by decade and medium. Okay. But it's kind of all at the same time. She is on TV, in the movies, and on stage through her entire multi-decade career. 
So we're starting in the 1950s and 60s in theater on okay. stage where she got her start. So it's 1952 and little Maggie. Have you ever looked at young pictures of Maggie Smith? No. She I'm gonna, I'm gonna is right now. beautiful. Like look up young Maggie Smith. It, she's just so adorable. And the internet is full of photos of her because she's been in literally everything. So 17-year-old Maggie Smith gets a... Yes, I'm your mouth agape at these photos. Look You're at her. Funny, especially in like this photo, she looks like Natalie Wood. Yes, she's stunning. I love oh that photo my of her. God. Okay, well, that's going in one of the posts. It, it has <laughs> to. It, it absolutely has to. That's the cocktail post. Oh Isn't gosh. she beautiful? And her is a blonde in this one. I know. Guys, I know you're gardening and driving, but you should really <laughs> look up these photos. They're <laughs> so stunning. And she's been in so many things that she's had so many looks. Yeah. Oh, I love this. Yeah. Oh, this is fantastic. She's so fun to look at. Mm. Okay. So we're going back to 17 years old. Okay. She gets a stroke of luck and gets cast as Viola in the Twelfth Night at the Oxford Playhouse. So she just kind of goes on stage and does a great job. Ugh. And then she continues to act in production. Cinderella, Cake of Ale, The Government Inspector, among several others. I'm invoking the Madonna Clause. There's absolutely no way I can cover her career. Also, Madonna's in the hospital right now. What? You didn't know that? No rush to the hospital why didn't you text me immediately (laughs) (laughs) i assumed you got the news excuse me what is madonna's condition (laughs) we don't know she has like a horrible bacterial infection she was in the icu this is not okay i know MRSA (laughs) (laughs) dare it be MRSA (laughs) uh we don't know so yeah if you got i mean obviously we'll know by the time this releases so this is going to be really old news oh my but yeah Madonna Claus. Sorry about that. Sorry. Wow. I'm going to have to change the name. It's too soon. <laughs> Maggie Smith Claus. Even though she's t- also old. This is the Elizabeth Taylor Claus. Yeah. <laughs> I can't possibly get through everything. <laughs> okay. But very quickly after she has success in the Oxford Playhouse, she makes it on Broadway. She like goes to the United States. She is by 1956 in theater productions. On Broadway, New Faces, Share My Lettuce, The Private Eye. <laughs> Share My Lettuce. I don't even understand the name of that one. <laughs> um, but she wasn't just cast in these things. She's also starting to get noticed for these things and winning just like some basic standard uh-huh. theater awards. Nothing of note. <laughs> but she did catch the eye of Laurence Olivier, Ooh. who invites her to be part of the new National Theater Company. So Laurence Olivier is starting a British national traveling theater company, and she is in the inaugural group of actors with him, who she calls Larry in Ah, interviews. Larry. Larry and Maggie. (laughs) But they uh, quickly strike up a rivalry. They were not good friends. Oh, no. Now, they weren't like enemies but this is what her biographer said about them he knew immediately that he'd met his match that she was extraordinary but having her in the company they quickly became not enemies but professional rivals never on stage had anyone been quicker than him and it became a competition 
So she is like young 20s and she's just so good that uh-huh. I think it is like threatening to him as an actor. Yeah. And she's also like bold and speaks to him directly. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't used to that. <laughs> uh, so she played opposite him in Othello. And uh, during this production one time, there was a play night that was going really, really poorly. And he was just so frustrated. And she said in an interview that there was this like... um stage slap like he had to slap her and he just actually (gasps) slapped her on stage which is like super abusive (laughs) they like did not like each other um but they acted uh, you know aside one another in multiple plays including much ado about nothing like they were in many plays together for the multiple years yeah but she's also at this time not just traveling and being on stage She was also in film. Her first film role was unaccredited. She Mm. didn't even have a name, whatever. But her first screen credit was for her role as Bridget Howard in Nowhere to Go. And just like everything else in her career, she starts to receive award nominations (laughs) right away. And she's not in low-budget things. Right. She was in the VIPs with Elizabeth Taylor and (gasps) Richard Burton. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's really cool. And then Laurence Olivier is going to make a movie for Othello. And he's like, well, the only person who can do it with me is Maggie. <laughs> like, we're going to have to do it together. I love that he's like, I fucking hate her. But also, she's the best person. For she's the, the best person for this role. And let me tell you, that's the person to be in life. Mm-hmm. Be so good that they literally can't deny. Yeah. Even if they hate you. Yeah. <laughs> Use your let your work speak for itself, Maggie. Exactly. Let it, let it, let it. <laughs> um, and that she actually got her first Oscar nomination for this for Best Supporting Actress. She didn't win, but she got her first. That's I mean, she's pretty young to get an Oscar nomination. Yeah, uh, for a British actress doing a Shakespeare movie. Well, it's also funny to me that she just kind of went right from like she did like passed over the West End. Like I yeah. feel like usually people start in the West End and then go to. Well, Broadway. I wonder how much this traveling theater company hung out in the West End. You know right. what I mean? It is yeah. the National Theater Company. Because uh-huh. uh, she does do several plays throughout her life in the West End. It just, like, t- I didn't do a lot of research into what the National Theater Company is. Oh. <laughs> I just know she was a part of it. Yeah. So, okay. Early in her career, she's also in many comedies. She was in Go to the Blazes, The Pumpkin Eater, Young Cassidy, Hot Millions, Oh, What a Lovely War, And these are all movies, and I account, like, I let this account for her perfect timing. Yeah. Like, agreed. She is so funny, even in dramatic roles. Mm -hmm. Like, when she's telling Harry Potter and Ron Weasley to transform themselves into a map, and she's like, well, how about a pocket watch? (laughs) She is so, her timing is impeccable. And, like, I felt the same way in Downton Abbey. She is, like, a villainess in that show. Really? I've never seen it. Well, she's, like, the Dowager Duchess. So she's okay. the mother of the Duke that owns, like, this area. And he has three daughters. And he's trying to marry his daughters well. We'll talk about it later. But <laughs> we'll talk about it now, I mean. Oh, I thought you meant, like, just the two of us. But, like, we're going to get into it in this story. Okay. No, 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 no. Like, I'll talk about it a little bit later. I had to glaze over everything. But she... Like, is kind of, like, doesn't want to hand the money and the family stuff over to so-and-so, but she has very little power because she's a woman. Her timing is so 
funny. I can't believe it. It's so good. I don't know. Mm. If you have if you have not watched Downton Abbey, which Jake and I never finished it because they took it off of Netflix oh, when no. we were halfway through. <gasps> so now we have to like purchase it because we both were really into it. It was very oh, good. Oh, I'm going to watch it. Okay. Yeah, it's very good. It was definitely it. worth it. Okay. Um, okay. So perfect timing. She's a comedian. Also, she does sing. For those of you who don't know, I she's a very know. good, like, songstress. Now, she's very self-deprecating about her own voice because, like, she's not like a Julie Andrews, but she's really good. I mean, it's hard for any British singer nowadays. Of course. Because you're always going to be compared to Julie Andrews. Yeah. It's like, like if we were all compared to Britney Spears. <laughs> we Oops, could, I. <laughs> we could never. <laughs> How could I? <laughs> You think I'm going to wrap that snake around my shoulders? <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm a <laughs> Now, the only one they play at the grocery store is Lucky. What are they doing with that? Every time I'm in Giant, she's so a lucky. lucky. She's, she's a star. star. I love that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yes. Okay. That song came out. Mm. And... We were it's on the Slave for You album. We were friends by then. <laughs> but and- <laughs> we, were, we were official friends by then. Like, actual. <laughs> I remember at some point, like, you were like, you know what's really annoying? You're like, the popular girls never get a story of that. This is before Mean Girls came out. Oh. And you're like, it's really hard to be popular. It is. And they're like, you're like, they never make, like, movies or stories about how hard it is to be popular. And I was thinking about the Lucky song, and I was like, all right, I'm going to write a story about like how hard it is to be popular girl. Hell yeah. And you know what's funny? I named the main character Claire Underwood. <laughs> no, you didn't. I did. Because Claire was the richest girl name I could possibly think of. <laughs> and Underwood is close to your last name. Well, no, Underwood was the name of the company that made the typewriter that sat in my mother's library. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Greenwood is the name of the towing company from our neighborhood. <gasps> That so funny? is so funny. Of House of Cards fame, Claire Underwood. <laughs> Robin Wright, you've made it. <laughs> you made, made it. it. You made it, Robin. <laughs> is that weird, though? That is very weird. Also didn't know that happened to you. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I took everything you said, like, as if it were, like, my personal Bible when I was a kid. And I was like, <laughs> because you I'm going to make no Ellie's sisters. dreams come true. <laughs> Write this story for her. It is very hard to be popular. It's like okay. Also, I want to be very, very clear. Anytime you're at church, they're like, "If you're wealthy, fuck you." <laughs> like every Bible verse is like, "You're meek, you're weak, you're poor, you are blessed." Everyone. That's how, that's how you know I went to real, real churches, and not <laughs> these pop culture ones. I cannot believe it. They hit. They love the blue collar in, in church they love it as they should <laughs> i'm not an anti-blue collar just i want i want some caesars and herods that are like blessed as well somebody give me a good king <laughs> anyways that was a terrible terrible tangent and i do apologize it was a beautiful tangent okay um, okay in June of 1976, she marries actor Robert Stevens. They're married for about eight years and have two sons together. Both of these boys are in the performing arts. They're mm-hmm. actors in England, and they are in movies and plays and whatnot. They're doing very well for themselves. Um, but the reason I bring this up now is they're married for eight years, and maybe the next minute of me talking, keep in mind, she was getting married, having two babies, and getting divorced Ugh. while all this is happening. Oh, my God. So she's, like, really on her game. Mm. So 
She stayed with the theater company in uh, the UK for eight years and she's growing and she's learning and she even goes and does this Shakespeare festival where she had already been in Othello but at the Shakespeare festival she plays Cleopatra in Cleopatra and Antony. She plays Queen Elizabeth in Richard III and then she plays Lady Macbeth in Macbeth. Oh my god. All in the same festival. That's crazy. And despite the fact that she already got an Oscar nomination for Othello and then does all this amazing stuff. She said it on a show when people asked her about it. Oh, it was in the guardian. Um, Shakespeare's not really my thing, <laughs> but because being a Shakespearean actor is so high tier right. in great Britain. Mm-hmm. I think that like, she's like, that's not what I'm great at. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I'm good at it. Mm-hmm. Like who's the guy who plays um. The crazy professor in the second movie. Can you see me? Can you hear me? <laughs> What's his name? Professor what? Lockhart. Oh, Gilderoy Lockhart. Yeah, yes. he is a super famous Shakespearean actor in England. Oh, okay. So I that they picked that. him for that purposeful reason that he yeah. would be very like stage esque. Yeah, and that's just not who she is. Yeah. So she is going back and forth. She's on Broadway. She's in comedic roles. And some of the critics are like, she is so great at body acting. They talk about her like lurching herself around, kind of like Kramer from Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. She's like running on the stage and spinning in between things. And she actually wins a Tony <gasps> for um, the play The Private Life and then gets a nomination for Day and Night on Broadway just a couple years later. So Ugh. she's already into the Tonys in the 1970s. In terms of television, her early career is just like guest spots here and there, including she has a guest spot on the Carol Burnett show. But then she gets a full role in All for Love and wins a BAFTA for it, her first BAFTA. It's exciting. It is. After her divorce, she very quickly, like within the same year, she gets divorced in 1975 and then remarried in 1975 Whoa. to a playwright named Beverly Cross. And they just get married at the registrar office. It's mm-hmm. just like low key. Let's not talk about it. And they're married up until his death. So really? her second husband oh, wow. and they never have kids. She's got her two sons with her first husband. And then she's married to this guy forever. She wins her first Oscar for her role in Prime of Miss Jean Brody for, like, Best Actress. What? I know. She has an Oscar? She has two Oscars. What? I know. And she doesn't have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That's a tragedy. We looked her up. Now, some people turned them down. Oh. So okay. I don't know if she was offered a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, but Daniel Radcliffe has one. Yeah. She had to have turned it down. I don't think so. Um... And although, and it also it might have to be, and now she has two Oscars and like a lot of Tonys and stuff. So like, I also wonder if like you had to make an impact in Hollywood and a lot of her impact is in yeah. England and in New York. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that's like a little bit of the difference, although yeah. uh, the Oscar stage is in Hollywood. So yeah. like, I don't know. Okay. All through the 70s and 80s, she's in movies and comedies and dramas. Of note, she is in Death on the Nile with Angela Lansbury and Betty Davis. She's in the original Clash of the Titans. Uh, And then she has an appearance in um, the movie called Room with a View, where she stars with Helena Bottom Carter, Daniel Day-Lewis, Judi Dench, etc., etc. She's, like, keeping good company. Hold on. I'm sorry. Room with a view. The movie or the the movie. Oh wow! Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't realize she was in that. 
And it, I mean, she repeats acting with a lot of these famous British actors because right. every famous British actor was asked to be in Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, although she has a lot of famous people co-stars, there was a dark comedy she was in called A Private Function, and there were pigs in the film. They used all female pigs at six months old, so they weren't too, like, big and aggressive like mm-hmm. pigs get, like potbelly pigs. Um, but during one of the scenes, a pig, like, trapped Maggie in the corner, and she had to, like, jump over <gasps> it to get away. Oh, my God. Ugh. But in the late 80s, Maggie was diagnosed with Graves' disease, for which she had to undergo radiotherapy and optical surgery. If you've ever wondered why her eyes are so pronounced, it's part of Graves' disease. Your eyes, like, bug out, and she had to get, like, an optical surgery and do all this radiotherapy and this thyroid treatment to, like, keep her from dying. Maggie's fine. (laughs) And I think it's actually one of the most beautiful things about her face. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, it is one of the repercussions of this disease that she has. You know, it's funny. I was just watching a thing today about um, Elijah Wood and Mm -hmm. how, like, he's very, very famous for, like, his big blue Blue eyes. eyes. Big blue eyes. And, uh, but apparently he (laughs) has terrible eyesight. (laughs) And... (laughs) One of the Finn and Pippin or whatever their names are, Mary and Pippin, mm-hmm. um, one of the actors was like, I think it was because he was just like born and he couldn't see. So he's just trying to like see and he just kept pushing his eyes out. <laughs> I was like, see what was ah! going on. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Mary and so Pippin. Maybe that's what happened to Dame Maggie. <laughs> I love that you said Finn and Pippin because I'm thinking about Colin and Finn, who isn't one of them from New Zealand on Gilmore Girls. I think that's what you're going oh, for, yeah, like in your maybe. head. A similar thing. Little side <laughs> side boy characters. Okay. Um all through the eighties and nineties, she is in famous plays on Broadway, on the West End. She plays Virginia Wolf in Virginia. Oh my gosh. I know. So in lieu of talking about all the things she does in these plays, I decided to pull a couple quotes of critics of her plays. Okay. One says, there is only one Maggie Smith, but audiences get at least three of her. That's adorable. That's really cute. (laughs) One says, Maggie Smith has to be seen to be believed. Oh my God. And then the last one says... This actress continues to get laughs where no one else would, but her quiet is just as revealing. (gasps) Get out of here. I'm sorry. Exciting. (laughs) She does do a straight-to-TV movie in the 90s called Memento Mori, uh, where she gets nominated for her first primetime Emmy. She doesn't win, but she gets nominated for an Emmy. Once she gets an Emmy, she has the acting triple crown at Mm. this point. But more notably, in 1999, she was in the television adaption of Charles Dickens' novel, David Copperfield. This is crucial because this is the first time you see Maggie Smith acting with a young brown-haired boy who doesn't (laughs) quite have his glasses yet. And Maggie is actually responsible for suggesting Daniel Radcliffe for the role of Harry Potter. I know. (laughs) She acted with him in this film in 1999. She acted with Daniel Radcliffe in this film. In 1999. I didn't know that. And then she goes on to suggest him to the casting directors. Oh, my God. Like, go seek out this boy. He was really great. I guess he had a good temperament on set. Because in 1999, he would have been very young. Yeah. He's, like, around my age. So... 
like younger than me even i think he's younger than me. yeah because yeah. emma thompson is younger than me i think rupert grint's the oldest he's around my age yeah but like it's not emma thompson of course she's older than me emma oh, watson, emma, watson. <laughs> emma thompson is professor trelawney also amazing but yeah so she's in this film with little baby daniel radcliffe oh my gosh i didn't know that that's how he got his start yeah yeah he's 33 so he's marjorie and casey yes casey's age casey's age yeah Perfect. So, yeah, it's so fun. Isn't that fun? I love that. Okay. In the 90s, in terms of movies, this is where she brought home the big bucks. And this is the Maggie that Katie and I grew up with. Uh And we fucking love her. She is a queen. Number one, she is Granny Wendy in Hook, opposite Robin Williams, which she did a great job, like, using her big blue eyes to, like, look off into the distance. And also... I wish there were retroactive Oscars because they put age makeup on her for that film. And now she looks like that. So like <laughs> I spot on guys. Good job. Um, that film brought in $300 million in the box office. And that's like early nineties. That was a lot of money. Yeah. Then she's a mother superior in sister act and sister act two, arguably a better movie sister act two. <laughs> alongside Whoopi Goldberg and Lauren Hill and I am obsessed with her as that nun (laughs) what I'm obsessed with just sister act as a movie sister act (laughs) two listen I cannot talk to you about their performance of joyful joyful (laughs) without singing it so be prepared Um, the rap break in the middle joyful joyful lord we (laughs) you down with me yo (laughs) g-o-d I feel like I'm not going to get into it. And then you immediately went into it. Um, I also, I was more familiar with the, um, <laughs> my guy to my God transition. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I <laughs> dressed in a poodle skirt and performed that at my church. Of course you did. You know whose poodle skirt it was? Carrie Bear. Carrie Bear. Her mom's birthday is tomorrow. Happy birthday, Aunt Patsy. <laughs> We just full named them. You can find them online anywhere you go. <laughs> At Aunt Patsy on. <laughs> just stop. Find Aunt Patsy. She's very good at math. <laughs> the best at math, arguably. Yeah. <laughs> She's like the Dame Maggie Smith of math. <laughs> she might be. <laughs> Whew. Okay, so then she was in the Five Wives Club with Goldie Hawn, Diane Keaton, Bette Midler. I mean, come on. She was in that movie? Yes. That's another movie. Wait, what did you say? The Five Wives Club. First Wives Club. First Wives Club is what I meant. <laughs> That's one of those movies I have not seen, and I can't believe I haven't seen it because it has it. so many of my favorite people. It, I, I mean, it's one of those movies where it's just, like, iconic, and you want to sit down and watch it, but then when you go to sit down and watch it, you're like, I'm not ready. Right, yeah. I feel like I'm not prepared for this. Right. But now yeah. I feel like as a current first wife, Maybe yeah. I can. Yeah, I think you should. Maybe I can. <laughs> it's time. <laughs> it's time. <laughs> oh, wait. That was the Jurassic Park song. <laughs> I meant to do the Lion King song. <laughs> you remember when they saw the dinosaur? And <laughs> it's time. <laughs> oh, I hate myself. Okay. <laughs> and then she goes on to win a couple Oscars for like oh my God. tea at Mussolini's last September curtain call. Who cares? All right. Now we're into the 2000s. In 2002, Maggie, do you say 2002 or 2002? 
2002. Ah, oh, damn. I always say and. Like, it's a really? thing. I said 2002. Why did I say that? Okay. Stupid. In 2002. Sorry, I say 22. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a wrong year. I'm talking about the past. The past should say right where it belongs. There. In 2002, Maggie reunited with her best friend on stage, Judy Dench, and the, the they did the Breath of Life, which again, critics didn't love this play, but they said in the paper, the exception was Maggie Smith, who arrives in the last minute of the first act and then dominates the second. Like, she just brought the play up as a whole just by, like, existing. I love that. I know. And if Maggie was not already famous enough, she joined a star-studded cast playing a most-loved character in a most-loved children's book series of all time. She was in seven of the eight Harry Potter films as Professor, Professor McGonagall reuniting with Daniel Radcliffe. Wait, seven of the eight? Yeah, so the first half of the... Deathly Hollows. Yeah. They were never at Hogwarts. So oh, a lot of the teachers nice. like I think you see a glimpse of Snape, but like a lot of the teachers aren't in that one. Weird. They didn't, didn't even know. Yeah. Because they're like existing in the background of our brains, mm-hmm. but they're never actually in the film. Huh. Bananas. Okay. Yeah. These movies, uh, purposefully, and if you're a big Harry Potter fan, this is something that's often talked about. They hired legendary and elite British actors to bolster up the children's performances because mm-hmm. kids are just not as good at, at acting so to make it more real they picked very very talented people who are award ridden like they're just stacked with awards mm-hmm. all the adults in the film but from the moment that she steps into that entrance way in front of the great hall you are captivated by her because maggie did not play minerva mcgonagall she is yeah minerva mcgonagall Without inflation, Harry Potter is the third highest grossing film of all time with $7.7 billion worldwide. Oh, my God. That's the first one? No, of all the, oh, the series. Like the, the most, series. the highest grossing oh, okay. series. The highest grossing all, series. Third okay. highest grossing series of all time. So it would be in comp- competition with like, like Star, Wars, Star Wars, Indiana okay. Jones. Yeah, Marvel. Things okay. like that. During the filming of these movies in 2007, Maggie was diagnosed with breast cancer. <gasps> she had to go through radiology and wears a wig in some of the movies because her hair fell out. Oh my God. In many scenes, especially in Half-Blood Prince, you can see her holding onto railings while she's delivering her lines because she literally couldn't stand there while she was acting. But she made it full to a full recovery mm. so that in Deathly Hallows Part 2, she could Fight off Severus Snape in the Great Hall like a badass. Perfect. I know. Best scene. Best scene. (laughs) Um, She shares often about working on the films and that sometimes it was tiring and frustrating because when you act with kids, A, they're goofy, and B, they have to have a certain amount of breaks every day. So what you have is some of the most famous, successful actors of all time sitting around waiting. They're getting paid to sit there. She said that people like her and Alan Rickman just had to sit in the background at the head table in a lot of shots and they let the kids do the acting and then the camera would spin to them for a reaction shot. She goes, after a while, I ran out of faces. <laughs> She's like, I didn't have any more reaction faces. I didn't know what oh to do my gosh. <laughs> because that's all she was doing. She was teaching in front of a room and like 
some of her great parts where she's actually acting don't come until the very end where she's actually in the battle scenes mm-hmm. fighting the Death Eaters. Yeah. Um, especially her. Like, I feel like Alan Rickman had more to do. Hagrid had, or uh, Robbie Coltrane had yeah. more to do. Dumbledore, mm-hmm. um, what's his name? Michael uh, Gambit. Michael Gambit had more, they had more to do. She was just very, like, by the book. Right, there you know? weren't many outside of teaching scenes. With her. With her. She's the quintessential teacher. Yeah. Which is funny because you brought this up recently that Robbie Coltrane, who played Hagrid, yeah. was really crucial for the kids because he was in so many scenes with all three of them. Mm-hmm. And I never thought about that until yeah. you brought it up. And he I was, was like, like an oh, uncle. Yeah. yeah. It's so sweet. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, um, however, uh, Maggie does have five grandchildren who loved her as Professor McGonagall. They were, like, blown away that she was in all the Harry Potter films. And I don't know where she found the energy because during Harry Potter and cancer treatment, she was in Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. She was in Becoming Jane. She was in Nanny McPhee. She's in all these very famous movies. In terms of television, she did finally win her primetime Emmy for lead actress in this series called My House Umbria. Uh, And she also got eight Golden Globe nominations for that film. Wow. Uh, And it was she also starred in Capturing Mary on HBO. So she's an e-bot. Yes. Because she's won an Emmy, a BAFTA, Uh an Oscar. She's won all of the all of the acting awards. Yes. No vocal awards. Yeah. Now, all she has to do is read an audiobook. Literally, oh, yes. Just, just narrate the first Harry Potter as a special yeah. bonus, and you'll win something. And then she could be a bigot. The, the best of them. Mm-hmm. A bubagot. The best BAFTA yeah. Oscar. <laughs> Tony. Her most famous television appearance of late is on the hit Downton Abbey, uh, where Maggie appears as Violet Crawley, the Dowager Countess of <laughs> Grantham. This is a British period drama which became super popular between 2010 and 2015 when it was on. Her character is a fan favorite because everybody watching the show knows and loves Maggie. And we all know her at this point as a semi-wicked, conniving, but also smartly cute and witty great aunt of sorts. <laughs> um, she said on the Graham North- Norton show that she never watched it. She never watched it back. And he asked, why was she disappointed? And she said, no, I just don't have enough time left in my life to watch Aww. Downton Abbey. <laughs> like, I'm like towards the end. I don't, I'm not going to sit down and watch this show. I, I was there. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> I'm not watching it. Um, she also said though, of her performances as professor, professor McGonagall and Violet, that they were not hard roles for her. And she didn't even really feel like she was acting. She just kind of like showed up and was herself. And she loves the theater way, way, way more. She prefers being on stage. Yeah. For this character, she won three Emmys, a Golden Globe and a SAG award. And then in 2015, she announced she was not going to return turn to the show she was like this is my last season I just can't do it anymore and they actually just stopped the show after that season they were just like whatever without Maggie Smith who cares (laughs) while filming though she did lose her husband of the last several decades in 2013 uh, and she describes herself as lonely now she says it seems a bit pointless going on on one's own and not having someone to share it with sad yeah that is sad 
She did make her way back to theater, though. They asked her to join in on the 50-year anniversary of the National Live Theater for Britain. And her being in the inaugural group, it was a big deal for her to come back to do that 50-year anniversary. Her last performance to date on stage was in A German Life at the Bridge Theater in London. And that was in 2019 pre-epidemic. She's acted with, um, like, many critically acclaimed movies recently, but the biggest one she did was the Downton Abbey movie that they put together to kind of finish off the storyline, and that was $193.4 million (sighs) that they made. In 2018, and I watched this cute documentary, um, in Britain it was called Nothing Like a Dame, and she sat down with herself, obviously, Judy Dench, Eileen Atkins, and Joan Plowright, and they just sat and, like, spilled the tea about that. their life. If you want to watch it in the U.S., it's called Tea with Dames. It's just a cute gap fest. In terms of charity, she's donated money to rebuild a theater in New Zealand after an earthquake. She's also a patron of the Oxford Playhouse. She contributed a drawing of her hand to the Celebrity Paul auction, which was to raise money for cats, which is adorable because Professor McGonagall is a cat. And then during 2020, she participated in a celebrity Zoom reading of different Shakespeare. I mentioned several awards, but I really wanted to put them all together so that we would understand the breadth of her career. She is a dame of the British Empire. She is a member of the Order of the Companions of Honor. She has four honorary doctorates and one honorary fellowship. She has six nominations and two wins for Academy Awards. She has several Tony nominations and one Tony, four primetime Emmys, five British Academy Film Awards, three Golden Globes, five SAG Awards, a record seven BAFTAs and um, several different awards that are just named after people. Like she has the Laurence Olivier award. She's in the (laughs) weird because she was like a contemporary of his. Yeah. She's in the British theater hall of fame, the American theater hall of fame. She's got a lot of Shakespeare awards. And obviously because she's a dame most recently, she attended the coronation of King Charles (gasps) the third, but Maggie does not plan on retiring. In an interview after the movie where she played Violet from Downton Abbey, they asked her about retiring, and she said, I'll keep going as Violet and then as any other old biddy that comes along. I love that. And that any is other the old story. Bitty. That's the story of Maggie Smith. I wanted to call the cocktail old biddy, but I didn't want people to think I was yeah. being disrespectful. So Dame Maggie, colon, old biddy. I love that. <laughs> That's her story so far. And I mean, she's still kicking. I can't believe she's still alive. I know. Because what? She's born in 35? Yeah, she's in her 80s. 34. She was born in 34. 34. Okay. So she'll be 90 next year. I know. She's really doing it. I'm so proud of her. Fantastic. All right. Well, we have to get more cocktails and talk about more famous women in showbiz. Showbiz. <laughs> showbiz night. Wait, did we roll out a red carpet? Oh, we should have. Ugh, how it. dare we? Back with another showbiz story and such a cute cocktail. <laughs> This 
is it turned out so good i Put was it like in i a had magazine. a magazine and it turned out just the way i wanted it to stop it's beautiful <sighs> so do you want to know what it is i do okay. i really do i mean there's jalapeno yeah. obviously <laughs> i'm like nervous about it so this is called adventures in shondaland oh fun <laughs> so it is tequila mm. jalapeno mm. cream of coconut peach liqueur lime juice all blended together and you pour it into a glass rimmed with a vanilla sugar. And so, like, I dipped it in vanilla extract and then rolled it in sugar. And That's then, a racy uh, edging. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you garnish it with a slice of jalapeno and a flower. It's I chose so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Cheers. Love it. It. Oh. It's so good. That turned out really well. It does. And I love that, like, the mm. the um, garnish, when you lean in, like, the smell of the, the jalapeno pepper is, mm. like, so there. And then just the sweet taste mm. afterwards. Yeah. Wow, Katie. Mmm. Okay. We might be famous. Mm. <laughs> I hope Shonda likes it. Because I do. And we're also, gonna like, have, we're going to have to, like, add it into our mm. cocktail book. Mm-hmm. Swipe mm. something off the side. And also, it's like because it's not a salt rim; it's a vanilla sugar rim. It kind mm. of counteracts like the the because it's. Not, I thought I was worried it was going to be spicy because mm-hmm. I put um, a half a jalapeno in for both of our cocktails, mm-hmm. and like you do get it on the back of your throat oh, yeah. a little bit. But yeah, that turned out well. I love it. We also don't do blended cocktails very often, so no. I was like I got to break out the blender for this. I one. mean, it is summer. <laughs> it is summer. All right, so what do you know about Shonda Rhimes? Okay, Shonda Rhimes, um, Grey's Anatomy, mm-hmm. uh, How to Get Away with Murder, mm-hmm. Bridgerton. Yeah. That's what I know about Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> That's Perfect. all I know. I mean, you know, she's a high-power uh, producer, I think. Yeah, she is one of the highest-paid, like, producers, writers, showrunners in Hollywood right now. Okay. I like, mean, I don't know anything like, about her life, but Yeah. Let's get into it because she is, I did not realize how many things that she has had her hands in. Uh, She's really like rolling the dough everywhere. Yeah. Got it. Um, Okay. So my sources are uh, thelist.com had articles written by Joey Keto and Brent Furtick. Um, I listened to the Making Podcast, which was really good. And it really um, kind of solidified her life story. And they talked to people who have worked with her. uh, And of course, Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. Okay. Shonda Lynn Rhimes was born in Chicago, Illinois on January 13th, 1970. How does it feel to be from the same city as Michelle Obama? I can't even imagine. Can't even imagine. <laughs> uh, she was the youngest. She is the youngest of six children. Born. 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 She is the youngest of six children born to Vera and Lee Rhymes. Her father, Lee, was a school administrator who eventually became chief information officer or CIO at the University of Southern California, where he served until 2013. And her mother, Vera, attended college while raising six children, eventually earning a Ph.D. in educational administration in 1991. Her mom? Mm-hmm. Okay. PhDs in education are something I can vibe yes. with. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then her mom went on to become a university professor in Chicago. Cool. So having such a hardworking, powerful woman for a mother was a great inspiration for Shonda. And her father was also extremely encouraging as well. They always told Shonda that she could be 
whatever she wanted to be. And she truly believed it. She was a really bright child with one very notable attribute, her imagination. And this was probably the thing that really saved her as a child. Shonda describes herself as a highly intelligent, sensitive, nerdy, painfully shy girl with Coke bottle glasses and bad cornrows that really like looked out of the ordinary, uh, predominantly in like, like she was in predominantly white classrooms. So she was like, I had bad cornrows for like my black community. And then like, especially among white, like it did not look good. Yeah. There was not like the black hair acceptance that we have now in like Mm -hmm. uh, white communities or even black communities. Yeah. Um, so Shonda grew up with no friends from an early, so from an early age, she escaped into what she called Shondaland. That name has been around since she was a child. She's always called it that. And this was a world of her own creation where she could escape whenever she wanted. So she's constantly writing and telling stories just from an early age. And it's just Something that, like, I can't imagine, you know, like, I don't have a very good imagination. To, so to, like, see someone just totally escape into the world because the one they're in just, like, isn't working for them is so impressive to me. Um, but not only is she just, like, imaginative, she's so incredibly smart. She's always at the top of her class at Marian Catholic High, and she's doing everything she can to get into a top university. She even volunteered at a hospital in high school, which might come in handy later. (laughs) And she eventually graduates and moves on to the Ivy League world, and she attends Dartmouth College. She majored in English and film studies. She joined the Black Underground Theater Association and divided her time between directing and performing in student productions, all while writing for the college newspaper and writing fiction. Her goal was to become a Nobel Prize winning author. And she said in her commencement speech at her alma mater that she had never had dreams of becoming a TV writer. <laughs> she was like, it was always to be like the next Toni Morrison. <laughs> of course. I mean, of, who doesn't want to be that? Um, of course. So she graduates and then she's off to San Francisco to start her career in the early 90s. She moves into her sister's basement. Like she says, all good creative people do at some point. You have to. You have one in your attic. I have one. I have an Emily Dickinson (laughs) right upstairs. You can call her your Shonda Rhimes now. Oh, here we go. (laughs) My Shonda Rhimes is living here. (laughs) One of her first jobs on the West Coast was a simple desk job at an advertising company. But all the while, she was using her evenings to write scripts, which was interesting because it wasn't the plan. But she's trying to figure it out. And she is kind of like, maybe this is what I want to do. Like, maybe I want to go into the entertainment industry. I'm on the West Coast. Might as well. So she hears about this program at the University of Southern California. It's a film program that is more difficult to get into than Harvard University. So she's like, well, now it's a challenge. So now I have to overcome the challenge. <laughs> now I have to try to do this. <laughs> of course. She applies and gets into the USC School of Cinematic Arts. She, not surprisingly, becomes the top of her class mm-hmm. and then earns the Gary Rosenberg Writing Fellowship and graduates in 1994. But while she was there, something big and exciting happened. A woman named Deborah Martin Chase was on the lookout for an intern. So Deborah Martin Chase 
is also a low-key titan of the industry. Okay. She was a producer at Denzel Washington's company, Monday Lane Entertainment, and she would go on to produce films such as Brandy's Cinderella. (laughs) You mean the best Cinderella? The Princess Diaries. Oh, shit. Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and Cheetah Girls. (laughs) Let's talk about Blake Lively for a minute. Alexis Bledel, (gasps) come down. I love it. Love me some America Ferreira. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously a titan. That's like a list. That is this huge list. Um, I mean, Deborah Martin Chase is apparently to blame for everything I am as a person. (laughs) Um, Of course. Of course she is. Hell yeah. So she tells the US people, USC people, she goes, I need an intern and not just anyone. She goes, I need someone amazing. So they recommend Shonda. Deborah and Shonda hit it off immediately, and they develop a really strong mentor-mentee relationship. And soon she starts handing Shonda more and more opportunities. So she started off as kind of an administrator. She eventually made it into the writer's room, and every script that came across, Deborah was noticing, got like a little Shonda flair. So during the making of the award-winning documentary, Hank Aaron, Chasing the Dream, Deborah tapped Shonda to write the docudrama portion of the documentary. This was her first paid writing gig in Hollywood. And this movie would go on to be nominated for an Emmy and an Oscar. And it would win a Peabody Award. Wow. I know. That's a big deal. It's a very big deal. So this kind of gives her some confidence. And in 1998, she then made her own short film called Blossoms and Veils, starring Jada Pinkett Smith and Jeffrey Wright. And this is her only credit as a film director. I say. So I think she tried it and was like, you know what? Not quite for me. (coughs) But then. Jada from Baltimore. Shout out. Baltimore. Uh, And then in 2001, she writes the movie crossroads no starring no she didn't the scene from that movie the scene from that movie where what's her face loses her baby and she was like they said i lost it like a set of keys or something breaks me every time what a great film when like because then like (laughs) she's Obviously, like it happens in this very dramatic scenario, and she does drop her keys because yeah. she has a world, a little globe, globe chain, and she's like, "I lost my world that day." Like, yeah. oh my gosh, um, Tara something is her name because she was in Orange Is the New Black, and she was also in um, Black Snake Moon. Mm-mm. No, that's Christina Ricci. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. What is she in? Tara Manning. That's her name. Oh. Tara Manning. She's great. She has a little bit of a lisp. Mm-hmm. I really like her. And then it was also Zoe Saldano, right? Mm-hmm. Big names in this movie. And Kim Cattrall. And Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so perfect. I mean, Britney Spears, the one name we didn't mention. <laughs> for I did, though. Oh, wait. Oh, no, we did not. No, we did not. <laughs> she was great. Um, I just... The biggest, all right, you, I feel bad because, like, you are taken out of the movie immediately when she's like, no one likes me. I'm a nerd. I'm like, you're Britney Spears. You're literally the hottest person ever right now. Yeah. Like, there's no way she you are play the that nerd. Now, now that yeah. we've all seen her Instagram of the future. <laughs> Absolutely. Retroactively. Crossroads. Crossroads. Is worse. accurate. <laughs> So anyway, she wrote that movie. I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever. That, and that's a great movie. It is a great movie. I fucking love it. It's good. Um, 
<laughs> the I Love Rock and Roll cover. Iconic. <laughs> I mean, it's no Spice World, but that's okay. true. Um, okay. So then she gets asked to co-write the screenplay for a biopic called Introducing Dorothy Dandridge, which mm. starts Halle Berry. Damn, that was actually before Crossroads. That's I'm okay. sorry. I got so excited about Crossroads. It doesn't matter what order it happened, honestly. No, it doesn't. Um, this is not necessarily a chronological just, podcast. It's not, but I would like everyone to know she went from Halle Berry to Britney Spears. So big moves in the industry. Um, and despite... Hops, <laughs> skipping a leap. Despite the movie Crossroads uh, being critically despised, this movie was a smash hit. Uh, Crossroads earned $60 million at the box office with a $10 million budget. I just want to be perfectly clear. People, critics hated Crossroads because it was Britney Spears. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why they hated it. It is a solid movie. I love that movie. I think it's fantastic. Um, but Shonda was nominated for a Razzie for worst screenplay for this movie, but she said she wasn't bothered because she goes, I didn't write it for critics. I knew they would hate it. She goes, my goal was for 12 year olds to think that it was brilliant. Yeah. Which it was. And we did. (laughs) Good job. You did it. Where's the teen choice awards? I know. (laughs) So Shonda's career is obviously going pretty good at this point. And then Deborah asks her if she could write the sequel to the hit movie, The Princess Diaries. <laughs> so she says yes, and she starts working on Princess Diaries to the royal engagement. And one of the big things that she did for this movie was she made sure that there was a little more diversity in it. She was like, there are no black princesses. She goes, we literally have a scene where there's like a huge party of princesses, and there's no black princesses. So she brought in none other than Raven Simone. Of course. Which is so great. That's so Raven. It's so Raven. But she was a little distracted during the production of the movie because she told Deborah, I can't stop writing this new series that I'm thinking of. I just have it in my brain. It's about a hospital staff. Stop. Go ahead. Deborah said, <laughs> okay, I'm into it, but can we please just like finish this movie before we think about your little doctor show? Shanda says, absolutely. That's fine. But also I do need two weeks off because I need to go to Ohio to pick up my baby. This would be her daughter, Harper, who she adopted in 2002. Whoa. You mean 2002? 2002. (laughs) She was named after Harper Lee. And Shonda said that her seemingly abrupt decision was actually a reaction to 9-11. She said, well, if the world's going to end, what are all the things that I've like ever wanted to do? And she goes, so I literally saw that happen. I went home and I hired an adoption attorney. And she was like, I'm not going to live my life like without doing this big thing that I really want to do. Good for her. I know. Um, so she's adopting a baby. She's writing a medical show. Princess Diaries 2 comes out. And it doesn't do quite as good as the first one, but sequels rarely do. No. Um, but it's still fairly beloved. And Chris Pine is in it, so we like that. Um, and all the while, Shonda is talking to ABC and strikes a deal for the untitled Shonda Rhimes project and she wasn't just working on the medical show she actually first pitched a story about two female war correspondents but it's in the early 2000s mm-hmm. and we were in the midst of the Iraq war yeah it's a lot and ABC just did not want to get into it so then she's like okay that's fine because I have this other show that I'm really interested in um she goes it's a medical drama with a lot of romance she goes it's basically sex in the surgery <laughs> That's what she was selling it It is. I mean, can you imagine Life Without Dr. McSteamy and Dr. McDreamy? No. No. 
Absolutely not. That show coasted me through two miscarriages. Yeah. Do you understand? I, it's crazy. I have such a visceral memory of like the big Grey's Anatomy. Like, you remember when there was a bomb in one of the patients? Yeah. And it aired after the Super Bowl? Um, That's a visceral memory uh, for the me. First, the first time I ever heard the name Addison was on that show. I was blown away name. by that name. I had no idea name. it was a thing. I mean, hospital shows, detective shows, police academy shows, they do so well. Yeah. They do so well. Yeah. So she's developing sex and surgery. <laughs> and this time also, it was even more of a big deal because she goes, I'm not just going to sell it to NBC and let them like totally control it. She goes, I'm going to sell it under my own production company. Nice. That she named Shondaland. So I just love that the first show ever produced by Shondaland was the media juggernaut Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> and what a deep cut on the name. Yeah. Deep, oh. deep cut. It's so fucking clever. Because um, if you don't know, it's Grey's a book. Anatomy is a medical text that they teach in medical school. I remember a producer had it when he wanted to be pre-med. have a copy of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just, I, I, I really love that. I mean, it's one of the most iconic shows to exist in our time. I think, you know, it's, I agree. And well, it's for so 15 long lasting. seasons or something. How many? It's in its 20th. Stop it. It's still on. <laughs> I know it's still on, but I thought maybe 15 years. No, 20. Crazy. Um, so obviously it's like it's, general hospital. Exactly. At this point. Um, obviously it's iconic but they didn't know it was going to be back then. And one particular ABC executive just didn't want this show to succeed. So when they first greenlit it, he was like, all right, well, you know, let's put it as like a mid-season show. Um, so they replaced Boston Legal. I don't know why Boston Legal was going off mid-season, but basically when they do that, it's a show that they are not overly invested in. Mm -hmm. They aren't going to give it the time slot or the marketing that they would of a show that they really believe in. Um, but I don't know. It's just like, it's her, but they also, I mean, it was coming on after desperate housewives though, which was still a boost, but it's a show that is coming on in the middle of the year. You're like, wait, what is this? What is this new show? Mm -hmm. But of course, the important thing was that it was being made. <laughs> Shonda always had a vision of creating a show that she would want to watch. And in this case, she was dreaming of a show about smart women competing against one another. Mm. And I love that concept because we see men competing against each other a lot. Yeah. Um, she said, I wanted to create a world in which you felt as if you were watching very real women. She said, most of the women I saw on TV didn't seem like people I actually knew. They felt like ideas of what women are. They never got to be nasty or competitive or hungry or angry. They were often just like the loving wife or the nice friend. But who gets to be the bitch? Who gets to be the three-dimensional woman? Which I absolutely love. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And she said that the setting in the surgical room hospital, you know, like literally came from just her and her sisters being obsessed with surgery room, like <laughs> channels, like reality shows. Weird. Very weird. And she was talking about how in one of the shows, one of the female surgeons was like, oh, yeah, like the bathrooms here. It's like really hard to shave your legs. And she goes. Who else would be like 
worried about like shaving their legs in a hospital bathroom like that's so weird and it's just like put this bug in her brain of like what is it like for like highly competitive women to be in a male dominated hospital like (laughs) crazy um so in march of 2005 the first episode of Grey's anatomy premiered and there was a lot of pressure put on the show because rather than getting a whole season to kind of sort things out abc because they had this executive that didn't want it to be successful said if it doesn't hit in four episodes we're pulling the plug they had four episodes to gain traction. And that's like before people could, like people had to schedule around television yes. back then. Yes, they did. That's insane. It's crazy. So with bated breath, they watched the ratings. I mean, again, thankfully they were right after Desperate Housewives, which was like the biggest show on television right. at the time. Um, and but, everybody was trying so, to figure out what to do with their lives after Friends went off the air. Exactly. So it gave them like a little leg up, but they were nervous because they were like, a lot of people are probably going to just accidentally tune into the first episode. So really, it's about episodes two, three, and four. Are people going to be Come like, back. this sucks. I'm not going to do this next week. Or are they going to be like, oh, I really like that. Um, but every week, more and more people were staying tuned for Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> the week of the fourth episode aired, Shonda hosts at a party. And when she was planning it, she didn't know whether it was going to be a thanks for working with me, goodbye kind of party, (laughs) or we made it party. (laughs) But literally, by the fourth episode, fan fiction was appearing online. Oh, fan (laughs) fiction. You really keep us alive. We love to see it. Keep us going, babies. Grey's Anatomy is now going into its 20th season. It's ABC's longest-running primetime scripted show, and it even inspired spinoffs such as Private Practice and Station 19. Shonda kept growing Shondaland and found even more success with shows like Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder. At one point, Thursday nights on ABC were completely filled with shows that Shonda was the writer and showrunner on. That is so fucking cool. Yeah, it was called TGIT. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Thank it's God it's Thursday. Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> and people who were very into it were like really fucking into it. Yeah, so I never watched Scandal. I didn't either, but I um, heard it was really good. I know good. it's great. And it's one of those that's like on my continual list of like must do's. But yeah. I did watch How to Get Away with Murder. Was it good? Because it has so Liza Weil in it. Good. It, and um, Viola Davis <gasps> is the professor. Oh, I love that. I never, <laughs> it is. Never watched it. So this is like a very kind of not. No, it might be a spoiler, so I'm not going to say it. But they're definitely one of the main characters did actually murder somebody. And they're all going into class to be lawyers. And they're teaching them how to be defense attorneys. It's how to get away with murder. And there's this scene where Viola Davis is, uh, you know, she's a strong, amazing black woman. And she has a wig on. And she's going home at the end of the day taking her eyelashes off, taking her makeup makeup off, taking her wig off, and just, like, bawling in the oh, mirror. Oh, my God. And I cannot get it out of my head. Mm. The scene that was written right there and, like, Viola Davis's performance is, like, gut 
wrenching. And of course, Liza Weil is my favorite person yeah. ever. I think she <laughs> might be like, she's the television version of me. Like if I had had, if my parents had had money and like yeah. had told me I could do great things, mm-hmm. <laughs> she's like as uptight and anxious yeah. as I would be, you know, mm-hmm. it's very perfect. I love that show. Yeah. I really want to watch it now um, because I just, now that I like know more about like the things that she's written, I'm like, okay, I feel like Sean and I are like on the same wavelength. We're like, I totally get you, girl. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the thing is, especially with the show Scandal, people who were into it were very into it. Mm-hmm. And they started to tweet their reactions while they were watching. And this was a new phenomena called live tweeting. No way! This was started because of Shonda Ryan. Fuck! That's so cool! I know! That is so cool! And this all meant that she was the highest paid showrunner in television, and it's estimated that her shows brought in $2 billion for ABC. Talk to me about a woman being the highest, a black woman being the highest paid showrunner. Talk to it's me about so that. Cool. I want to talk more about it. <laughs> but it wasn't all smooth sailing for okay, Shonda of course, and the of course, network. Of course, of course, of course, of course. Of course, um, of course. Shonda wanted to kind of expand her creative vision, and she was starting to feel really stifled by the constraints of network programming. And then an incident involving Disneyland really set her off. So by this point, she had adopted uh, two daughters, so she had Harper, and then she adopted another daughter, and then she had a third daughter born via a surrogate, which okay. we'll get into her personal life in a little bit. Um, but since, you know, so she has three kids, she has a nanny that helps her, and since she was a Disney employee through ABC because of all the parent company situations, she got passes to Disney for herself, her nanny, and her three kids. So one week, her sister was joining. And so she was like, oh, can I get one of the, uh, another pass for my sister because she's joining us this week and we just want to go to Disneyland one day. They said, oh, we don't give out extra passes. But Shonda was like, that's stupid. Just like give me an extra pass. So they're like, you know, she was kind of insisting. She was like, that's really fucking dumb. Like I'm technically a Disney employee. I should be able to take my sister to Disneyland. Yeah. I'm so, making you billions of dollars. Literally on top of that. billion dollars. Yeah, like you, you owe me you at this point. You owe me. <laughs> so they were like, fine. They gave her the extra pass. But when her sister went to use it, it didn't work. Can you imagine? Your sister has made $2 billion for the Disney ABC conglomerate. And you get turned away at Disneyland. Your sister is Shonda Rhimes, and you get turned away at Disneyland. I'm really sorry. That's really upsetting, Disney. You're better than that. I know. So Shonda called the ABC exec to kind of be like, what the fuck? And he goes, what the fuck to you? He goes, you don't have $154 for a ticket to Disneyland? And she's like, that's not the point. Obviously, it's not the point. Of course Shonda has $154 to spend at Disney World. But it's more so the fact that she was like, I th- I'm imagining, like, she didn't say this specifically, but I'm imagining she was like, if a white male executive came in and was like, I want an extra ticket to Disneyland, they wouldn't think twice about it. For my it. mistress? Yeah, they'd be like, of course. Yeah. You because know? also it's her and her nanny and her kids. Mm-hmm. So there's usually a family, like yeah. a, a traditional family might be 
you, your husband, your kids, and mm-hmm. your nanny. Yeah. She doesn't have that extra person. Exactly. She's owed that extra person. She is owed that extra person. That's unfair. It is unfair. And, of course, it's, like, it's more so just, like, the disrespect of, like, I've made you $2 billion, and you cannot give me a $154 ticket. You I can't imagine. It's why like, not? Why not? And, like, and, again, it can, I feel like this story can come off as really bad for either party. But I personally, I'm, I'm, I'm on Team Shonda. I am like, I am employed by this company. Like, <laughs> yeah, I should like, I should be able to take my fucking sister to Disneyland. Especially like, when the passes already exist. It's not like she exactly. called. This is a built in system. Right. It's a built in system. For family. Mm-hmm. Like out of the company. Like, yeah, I, do, I feel like that's very disrespectful. And it's like Disney has it at this point. Yeah. We're and, on a hundred years of Disney. Like, calm down. Yeah. And to be given so much sass about it. Yeah. They're like, the exact literally said, you don't have $154. Right. That's so fucking rude. Because typically, like, if you called one person and they said no, and you were like, send me to your higher up, they would have said yes. Mm-hmm. This was like a joint decision that like, yeah. we're going to say no to Shonda Rhimes, which is so fucking which is dumb. Dumb. So she felt. So just like disrespected and she was already kind of fed up with ABC. So she goes, I'm not going back. I'm not, I'm done with ABC. And she signed a deal with Netflix shortly thereafter mm-hmm. for like $300 million. And I bet they buy her passes to Disney. Mm-hmm. So this was in a phase where they were, Netflix was really investing in showrunners. They're mm-hmm. like, we're going to give you really big deals to make, House of Cards. Multiple really <laughs> great shows. Right. You know, um, and thankfully we got Bridgerton because of this. Of course. But it's interesting because I didn't know this. There was a couple other people that they had done similar deals with. And the only successful one was Shonda. Huh. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they, they have so many like Netflix original shows. Yes. That like they, they must have really cast their net far. Yes. And this, and I think at this point they were like, okay, we have a couple of like hits with like, again, House of Cards. Sure. Is the New Black. Like those were like their first two big hits. Yeah. But they were like, we want to get involved in franchises. They saw Shonda Rhimes and they said, this bitch can make a franchise. She's a franchise quarterback. She literally mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. She, <laughs> I mean, come on. So they were like, all right, Shonda Rhimes is going to be good for the long haul. So it's like one of the biggest deals in television history. So she comes in and she starts making Bridgerton. This show was created by Chris Van Dusen. And it is based off of the book series written by Julia Quinn. And this show really allowed Shonda to stretch that gorgeous, gorgeous imagination. You mean like the pink converse and the ball gowns? <laughs> Calm down. It's everything I've always wanted in a show. It's just like, you know, and it's great because she's expanding it into the traditionally rigid world of Regency era England. And it hallmarks her, like all of her interests, which are ambitious, three dimensional women, sex, romance, scandal. And most importantly, enemies turned lovers. Mm. She loves that shit. That's my favorite thing. Give me a slow burn, enemies turned lovers. That's all I want. Because what Shonda Rhimes is interested in is catering to people and demographics that often are not taken seriously. It's like, yes, Bridgerton is a show for people who love bodice rippers. But don't people who love bodice rippers also deserve shows that are high quality? Yes. Yes. I think 
so I think it's what Sarah J. Maas is doing for the world of romance, like novels. Novels. I and really I, do. I just like I think that like poorly written romance novels are deserve to be out there. Yes. And I think that be, when you have enough poorly written romance novels, you get really great written romance novels yes. because it is a great genre. It's such a good genre, and sh- and Shonda knows that. She goes, "This is such." a fantastic world to really build something in. And I just, I, I you know love why? that she was like, I'm balls deep in this world of like teen romance fiction. And like, do you know and why? I'm going to make it amazing. I'm going to make it the best viewed show on Netflix. <laughs> the reason it's so looked down upon is because it's a, a girl thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's all, catered to women. And all the men in the show are like, out of the league of what any man we actually know could be. Yeah. So they feel threatened by it. Mm-hmm. The same way when I watch a football show and literally every girl in the show is a fucking ten and a half. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I really feel threatened by this show mm-hmm. and I hate it. Yeah. Like I think like this is what men are now confronting with the romance genre that we're just like, no, this is actually our fantasy. Yeah, exactly. So get on board or like walk away. I'm yep. on board with like taking diet pills for you. You dickhead. (laughs) (laughs) Can you please, please tell me I'm pretty like maybe once a day. You could buy me flowers or make me a card as well, but like, tell me I vex you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Give me the Mr. Darcy speech. (laughs) Mr. Darcy, you bitch. So I just, I love that she is just really committed to being like these Stories have value. Mm. It can be sexy and still be respected. Yes. Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> and now, of course, we have Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton spinoff prequel kind of show. which Perfect. I, I haven't watched yet because now I'm on my second watch through Bridgerton, but I'm very excited to get into it once I'm finished um, my rewatch of season two. Um, but yeah, but that's the Bridgerton thing. And I love that, like, again, she's not afraid to bring modern things into Regency era. She's like, yeah. There's a, a a lord, a dandy at the ball with fucking dreadlocks. Yeah, and like, why not? We love it. All the songs in the show are also so good because yeah. they're all like classical versions of pop songs. If you haven't watched Bridgerton, you have to. I mean, also my favorite thing about it is that she wove in this multicultural, multiracial, multi-body type cast and made it seem normal. Totally normal. Like, yeah. And also LGBTQ mm-hmm. cast. Uh, and like storylines, but then also wove in the judgmental quality. Yes. And it's hard to do both. You can't bring all that in and then just be like, oh, this is a perfect world where we all accept each other. Yeah. It isn't a world of more equal representation where we don't accept each other. Mm-hmm. What a great writing skill. Can you believe it? No, it's so good. Nobody's done it. It's so it. good. Thank you, Shonda. Thank you, Shonda. <laughs> um, she also produced Inventing Anna, which was a huge hit. It was a limited series based off of the Anna Delvey case. Okay. Uh, which was that girl who was like uh, faking being the heiress and really wild. Perfect. Um, good. So yeah, she, she did that. And she has a few other things in the works. She is also thinking about getting out of her comfort zone and maybe exploring a sci-fi type of show. I'll start in it. Shonda. So come on. I'm we'll here. See what she decides. But one thing is for sure. Shonda is not slowing down quite yet. So because we we're all caught up with her professional life so far, I want to get into her personal life. Shonda 
is very private, <laughs> but she has always had a very clear vision of what she wanted her personal life to be like. When speaking with Oprah on her show, Super Soul Sunday, Shonda said, I'm one of those people since I was five, I could tell you I'm going to have kids. I could tell you I'm going to have three. And I could tell you they're all going to be girls. <laughs> and she just had no interest in getting married or settling down otherwise. So she made this family happen for herself. She goes, great, I'm going to adopt two. And like, I do kind of want to have some kind of biological involvement with the third one. So she goes, I'm wealthy enough now. I'm going to do a surrogate. She just knew that that's what she wanted. So she was like, I'm going to make it happen for myself. She's the doer. She really is. And she was like, and I realized that I was a person who wanted to be a mother, but didn't really want to be a wife. She goes, I was in a long-term relationship at some point, And I just admitted to myself that I didn't want this to turn into a marriage. She said, I love having boyfriends. I love dating, but I do not want a husband in my house. <laughs> <laughs> She's in charge. Which I love. Yeah. And that revelation has been so freeing for her because she said, a lot of people ask me, you know, do you feel a lot of pressure to get married? And she goes, no, because there's no pressure if you're not interested. <laughs> it would be like asking someone if they felt pressured to go skydiving when they're like, no, because I'm not interested in skydiving. <laughs> And the last thing that Shonda Rhimes is well known for is a memoir about what she called her year of yes. She realized that she had made a bit of a habit of saying no, and her life had become smaller than she wanted it to be. So she decided to embrace a new philosophy. Anything that took me out of my comfort zone, I was going to do it if asked to do it. Year of Yes delivered some extraordinary experiences, including an appearance on Jimmy Kimmel Live, something she'd been really terrified to do, a cameo on Mindy Kaling's show, The Mindy Project, a commencement speech at her alma mater, Dartmouth College, and a weight loss regimen that led her to shed 100 pounds. Probably over that. Um, she said, when you're not making the most of your life, whatever your life is, it's not a life. So this was her year of just like, really taking back control over her life. And it also made her realize that she was a workaholic and it was not serving her anymore. Mm. She was burned out, working crazy hours, so sure. hard. But she goes, I wasn't being productive. And she didn't realize that until she really took a look at everything. Um, but yeah, I don't know, it's just, it's very interesting. So you can read her book here. Yes, uh, it's out there. <laughs> As of right now, it seems that Shonda is living her best life. Um, she loves her girls. She loves making fun shows. And she loves working with causes that she believes in, such as Time's Up and Planned Parenthood. She has a better work-life balance, but still retains that work ethic. And most importantly, the creativity and imagination that got her here in the first place. Mm. And that is Shonda Rhimes. What a great story. I know. So fun. I love her. All yeah. right, so now we're going to talk about these two ladies in conversation with each other in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. This is interesting because there's such big juggernauts of showbiz that we don't know, like, anything about. No, they're very private and secretive, which, like, I appreciate. Mm -hmm. I would never be like that. Absolutely not. I am an open book on mm -hmm. social media on a daily basis, but these women are so... Like, um, they keep, 
keep everything like close to the chest. Well, and I think that that's really interesting because you have to be really talented if you're going to do that. Right. And both of them have that. Their work speaks for themselves. And I also wonder if the work speaks for them personally. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I think, you know, the fact that Maggie Smith did Shakespeare and stopped doing Shakespeare says Shakespeare's not my thing. Yeah. The mm-hmm. fact that Shonda Rhimes does this type of show and not that type of show says this is what Shonda Rhimes likes. So yeah. it's not necessarily that you have to come out and do this big interview in Vogue. Mm-hmm. It's just like you are your work the same way that like Maggie Smith is Professor McGonagall. Like there is yes. there is nothing else. That's who she is. Yeah. And I was reading too that um, Shonda Rhimes put a lot of her self into the character of Christina Yang. Okay. In Grey's Anatomy. Sure. Sure. Because it. Christina Yang, like, I have not watched too, too much of Grey's Anatomy, but, like, you know, she's a person that, like, has a difficult love life because she is so incredibly dedicated to her career. Her job, yes. And yeah. she puts her job first, and it makes her personal life difficult. Hmm. And uh, I feel like for Shonda, this was, like, her kind of being, like, I want to make a character who's, like, feeling this pressure. And then when she was able to just, like, come out and be, like, I'm actually not interested. And then she was able to just take herself out of that situation. Because, mm. again, if you're not interested, there is no pressure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People can see, keep talking about it, but you know what's right for you. Yeah. And I just, I love that so much. I love that they're both just so bright and intelligent. I just, and they're very um, fluid with the genres that they work in. Sure. Like, I love that Maggie Smith can do, like, the most dramatic roles and, like, very, very comedic roles. And, like, theater, stage, mm-hmm. you know, it, it doesn't matter. Movies, mm-hmm. TV. But, like, I think the interesting like, connection between them is, like, you can't do acting without the writing. And you can't do yeah. writing without the acting. Like, the, the, both of those artistic abilities are so entirely separate, but mm-hmm. both so entirely important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they both do their separate pieces of that so well. Mm-hmm. Oh, I totally agree. And it's interesting because I was thinking a lot about, like, the people that were kind of surrounding them in their lives. And I was thinking about Laurence Olivier, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Larry, and... The ABC executives, and I kind of felt like there was um, a bit of hostility in both of those relationships for these women. Lawrence Olivia and Maggie Smith obviously like didn't seem to get along very well. The ABC executives like didn't really want Grey's Anatomy to be successful, which is like fucking dumb. But the thing about Lawrence Olivier is that like at least he knew that like Maggie was talented enough that he goes, "Oh, I'm not going to get in the way of her career." Yeah, like you know what I'm saying. And I don't understand why. And maybe it's because Shonda is a writer and she was known for writing kind of, again, like more like romance style scripts. Well, and, and if they, you're like, behind the scenes, but when you're behind the scenes, people can brush you off without the public being upset. Exactly. Right. Like Maggie, you can't get rid of. They'd be like, well, she already won an award for being Oth- like the, what's the woman's name in Othello? Disfruta? Dis something? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. doesn't matter. It's like. People already knew her as that role. So mm-hmm. they were like, why not Maggie? But if Shonda's behind the camera, yeah. you, don't, you don't get the public standing up for you, which is much, much harder to make yeah. a name for yourself. Now people are like, yes, Shonda Rhimes, TGIT. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. All mm-hmm. I want is what she wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking a lot about the differences and similarities between 
Downton Abbey and Bridgerton. And I've how ne- I've, I've never seen it, so I need to watch it. They're just these, um, you know, British kind of monarchical period pieces mm-hmm. and how one is so true to form, so white, so historic, so um, like classist. And the other is making all those same points with like just a fictional mm-hmm. atmosphere. It's just so interesting that we had one that ended in 2015 and then one that came out shortly after and how much our society has grown since then. Yeah. Oh, totally agree. And I feel like, you know, Shauna's been doing that in a lot of her shows, you mm-hmm. know, like from the get-go, like even with like Grey's Anatomy, like she really put her foot down in the casting of Sandra O oh mm-hmm. as Dr. Christina. Yeah. She was like, She's just fucking perfect for the role. Right. And now Sandra O's like a household name. Right. She's so good. So good. Um, but yeah, and I and here's the thing. I think that both need to exist because we need a Downton Abbey to understand why we need a Bridgerton. Breaking, why we need a Bridgerton. Yeah. Why breaking the rules in Bridgerton is so fucking important. Mm-hmm. Because She's not getting rid of the structure. Mm-hmm. She's just adding to the world. And I think that that really speaks to her imagination, mm-hmm. you know, and especially with things because like this, she is drawing from a book series mm-hmm. and uh, the characters in the book that are of color. I mean, the characters in the show that are of color are not of color in the book. Yeah. So that is a very bold move to be like, I'm going to take this beloved book series and make the characters different from how you have pictured them your whole life. Right. And I think that that is a brave thing to do. I think it's an incredible thing to do. And I would love for Maggie Smith to make an appearance. <laughs> and I like hope. have our worlds collide. Please. <laughs> yeah, I was, um, so I follow <laughs> Casper Turkyle on TikTok. <laughs> and he was, during Pride Month, like, gave this, like, really interesting talk on TikTok about how he's like the reason like that gay rights have made such a big move in the last decade or because straight people have gay children. So you have this immediate love connection with mm-hmm. someone who is gay, but representation amongst ethnicity and race and poverty is so different because by and large, rich people have rich kids. White people have white kids. Yeah. So when we watch a show like Bridgerton, you are seeing multi-ethnic, wealthy groups of people all existing together. Mm-hmm. And when we make those close connections with people who are different from us, it like grows the love and can move. Like it's taken 10 decades to happen in racial equality, what's happened in gay equality yeah. in two. Mm-hmm. And it's just because of the closeness. And I think that Shonda Rhimes is on the front end of we need yeah. to be closer together. I think so, too. God, I fucking love it. Look at us making waves. <laughs> <laughs> We're like changing the world, kind Woo! of. <laughs> All right. So here. who would you like to toast this evening from this episode? I want to toast people who know their strengths. I think Maggie's like, I can sing, but I'm not the best singer. I can do Shakespeare, but I'm not great at Shakespeare. I just want to play an old bitty. Like, just she knows her strengths at every age, and she played them so well at Mm -hmm. each point, and that's why she's so famous. Yeah. So cheers to people when you know what you're good at. Cheers. All right. I'm going to toast 
women who give us three-dimensional female characters. Yes! <laughs> yes! I think it's so important. I think it's so fucking important. And just, like, catering to us three-dimensional women who, like, love really good plots, love really good actors. Love romance. And love romance. <laughs> and, like, are not ashamed of it. Yeah. So, cheers. Three-dimensional ladies. All right. Now, what are you promoting in your uh i forget what we call it promotions what are you enjoying what in are pop you enjoying this week, this week? <laughs> what are you enjoying in pop culture this week so there's a book i've been putting off reading mm-hmm. because everybody was like read this book you will love this book and then i feel a lot of pressure mm-hmm. i get a lot of anxiety and i'm like i'm not gonna like it so it's a book called lessons in chemistry <gasps> i've been doing the same thing You've been putting it off i've been putting it off it's on my audible now you can uh, have it um so I it took like the first half of the book because I kept being like I'm not supposed to like this I'm supposed to like it I don't know how I feel about that Uh and then I was just like Allie stop yeah stop thinking about it and just enjoy it so it is set in the 50s and it's a female scientist and her struggles Uh and her life and her partner's life and her kid's life and it hits on literally Every feminist point we've ever hit on on this entire show, <laughs> but without being preachy. Oh, I and like I that. think that's the thing I was worried about yeah. that it would end up being preachy, but mm. it just ended up being like, I can't get the supplies I need at my lab, or like the silent unseen story. They touch on that, they touch on birth control, they touch on the fact that people don't want to change their last name, yeah. they touch on the fact that housewives in the 50s are feeling underserved as a community of intellectuals. Like, it just does it so lately it's like a dusting the story mm-hmm. so i ended up actually loving it i gave it five stars wow. on goodreads okay which i don't do typically mm-hmm. i'm a three four kind of girl <laughs> i don't give twos out because i feel like that's rude yeah unless i stop the book halfway through which also i don't feel like it's fair to rate a book if you stopped it halfway through so agreed i usually give out threes or fours but this one was definitely a five stars a great book I've been avoiding it, and I'm I. It was good. It was very good. That's really good to know because I have also been avoiding it. I don't know why, because like it's one of those books that like every time I walk into like Barnes and Noble or something, it's like there's a huge display of it. Well, you know what you should do? You should get it at the Bethany Bookstore and read it on the Ooh, beach. Yes, I am. Yes, I wouldn't say do. it's not like a great love story for the beach. It's not like a vacation read. Uh huh. But it's good enough to enthrall you on the beach. Okay. It's fun enough. Perfect. All right. What do you got? I'm going to promote Target. Um, sure. Why not? Target. I have you. All right. Have you ever been in like the spice aisle at Target? No. They're $2. What? Spices at Target on average are $2. In like the grocery market yes. part? Oh, wow. They're. Target has some of the best prices on groceries that I have seen in quite some time. Hmm. I got. A dozen eggs for a dollar ninety nine recently. Stop. How a much is this dollar <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I recently spent fifteen dollars on cardamom and they had it for four. <gasps> okay. Target, the hidden gem. Had and no idea. Also, they have this new they have this drink <laughs> that I'm obsessed with. They make caffeinated sparkling water. Zero calories, as much caffeine as a half a cup of coffee. And you are also getting hydrated because it 
is water. Caffeinated water? They take green tea extract and put it in the sparkling water. Did you know that's what my blood is made out of? Yes. <laughs> Caffeinated water? And my current favorite flavor is they have like a cherry cola flavor sparkling water that's caffeinated. Calm down. It's zero calories. That's it's crazy. so good. That's crazy. <laughs> is so. it like, but is it like a touch nothing but the lamp situation? You can only get one thing. What do you mean? You have to like, you can just buy whatever you want for cheap. Pretty much. That's crazy. I went on like a total binge the other day. I was like, I'm getting these nice little sauces. I'm like, the Good and Gather brand at Target. Okay. It is, is good. So good. It's so cheap. Yeah. I do like the box. I like the labeling. I do too. Mm, it's good. It's nice. I just couldn't believe how cheap the spices were. Yeah, I good for a, them. I went on a roll bench. Yeah, good for them. Good for them. Because <laughs> I go through a lot of dried oregano. Right. Um, <laughs> a lot of Italian seasoning. Mm. All right. So go to Target. Um, but then when you're done, please rate and review us. <laughs> on Apple Podcasts. That would be wonderful. Join our Patreon. Mm-hmm. We are wonderful. We give extra things. Now it's like taking me longer to post because my computer's being weird. But I am mm-hmm. posting like groups of them at a time. Oh, perfect. So you can catch up in your yeah. own time. You can catch up and everything's great. And we'll have to send you guys a present soon because we haven't yes. done it in a while. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and if you want to follow us everywhere, we're at Hurst from the Rocks. You can see us post on Tipsy Tuesdays, and you can play the quiz, Who Made Each Cocktail? People are getting better at it, <laughs> They honestly. are getting better. Uh, we love to see it. Um, but most of all, above all else, we want you to never forget that well-behaved women... Do not take part in British period pieces. <laughs> they don't, and they really make it. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>